in your face. We're in summer mode here at 3CR. Going to be playing some great repeat interviews that we did during the year. The first one is with gay local DJ Phil Solomon, a.k.a. Goat Spokesperson. Phil, how are you? Pretty good. Pretty good, yes. My God, last time we chatted, you were about to go to Germany. It was July last year, and I said to you, you're going to go whoosh. And indeed you have. Ever since you opened that Folsom party in Berlin, you have been in demand here in Melbourne as a DJ. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's kind of wild. I, I kind of never really considered that I could have a, a career as a DJ, and I don't necessarily have a career, but it feels dangerously close to a job now. <laughs> and that must feel great. Now, your ambition was to play at Trough. You achieved that, but not only did you achieve it, you closed the party. Yeah, yeah the last two Troughs I've, uh, I've uh, closed. The last one I actually closed it with, um, I did a back-to-back with uh, DJ Jack Hardman, uh, who is uh, one of my DJ idols in Melbourne. So that was pretty amazing. Yeah. Now, what's next for you? I mean, you are in demand. Um, It is becoming a job for you. And you kind of, you know, the community loves your sets. Yeah. I've somehow gotten myself into this... uh, uh, I have a bit of a reputation for playing sexy parties. (laughs) The last few parties that I've played, there's been... Um, sex on premises, which is quite interesting. I don't know whether it's my style that's got getting me that, or just my connections in the community. But it's fun. I, I the thing is, I actually started DJing because I was kind of in awe of uh, Stereogamous, and in particular Johnny Seymour from Sydney, who used to play at an infamous um, sauna in in Sydney. Um, and actually he released a few of his sets as the sauna sessions. And I think that kind of captured my imagination, even as a young twink. Um, and I and I was like, I want to play for people having sex as well. So I've achieved that dream. And it must be uh, kind of uninhibited to, to DJ in that environment. It must make yeah. you kind of, you know, a bit unhinged in a way that makes you take risks with the choices that you make as a, as a DJ. I, I don't know, to be honest. I, sometimes I worry that my music might be a little weird for people trying to uh, get it on. Um, I, I, um, I, I, definitely, I definitely play something more than what you would expect at a sauna, I think. Um, I, I like to kind of play songs with like kind of silly but also sexy lyrics. Uh, I've been getting into a lot of ghetto tech recently, which, um, it, you know, the lyrics are generally quite filthy and I love them. Um, and and but it, must yeah. be, it must be great to actually be playing to audiences again because, I mean, we spoke during lockdown when you were mm. doing virtual DJing. Now, that was kind of yeah. fun, but are you relieved to be back with a crowd again in person? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Like play, playing to a Zoom meeting <laughs> is not is less fun than it sounds. <laughs> so, you know, uh, yeah, definitely glad to, to have people around responding, you know. You recently came out as having ADHD. It must be a relief to have that diagnosis, yeah? Yeah, yeah it explains so much. Um, you know, I have 
five jobs. Uh, not really exaggerating that, and um, and also just the the kind of stress of not being able to meet people's deadlines or not understanding people when they're trying to communicate things to me and just like being feeling quite sort of um, I guess out of touch with the world in some ways. So yeah, this diagnosis has really helped me kind of feel more comfortable in who I am and, and kind of understand myself a little bit better. So many people seem to be getting ADHD diagnosis at the moment. Why do you think that is? Does it, is it, do you think the world we live in with so many computer screens is kind of exasperating it? I, I, I would really not be surprised. I think, especially within my friendship circle, I have tons of people with ADHD. Uh, so it was no surprise for me um, to kind of finally get that diagnosis. But I think the world as it is now uh, will only make things worse, I think. Um, I mean, just the ability to be able to be on the phone while you're on the bog um, is like a whole a whole other um, level of distraction that I, I'm just not surprised. I'm really not surprised that it's becoming more and more prevalent. I mean, you've got a profile in the community coming out with it. Do you find that, you know, that has meant that other people are kind of saying to you, yeah, I've got it as well, and you kind of, you know, in this peer support environment? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'm one of the late bloomers, to be completely honest. I mean, a lot of my friends have had it and have been, um, you know, um, using various coping strategies for, for years now. And, you know, just by watching them and learning about their lives, did I realize that I myself had it? So it was almost as if the, the support network was there for me before I even came out. DJ Phil Solomon there, a.k.a. GOAT spokesperson. Well, in August, I spoke with Dane Blacklock from Satanic Rock Gospel Band, Dane Blacklock and the Preacher's Daughter. It's a pretty awesome thing to be involved in. I really love um, having something with a really firm ideology to be able to, um, you know, put all my efforts into and put, uh, you know, I'm really passionate about music, but having this um, uh, ideology that we can um, keep returning to that has a lot to do with all of these things that um, personally I am really passionate about and I know a lot of the band members are really passionate about, you know, um, gay rights and, um, uh, you know, just just freedom and uh, stopping the... Uh, religious authority kind of coming down over our secular, you know, government and our and our processes. That's what I love about Dame Blacklock and the Preacher's Daughter. There are so many queer currents running through it. Like, it really is, you know, a queer band, apart from being a satanic gospel rock band as well. And I love that. I love that intersection of, 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 of queerness and satanic rock and gospel. <laughs> Yeah, it's the um, it's the perfect cross section. <laughs> so, tell us a bit more about about the band's ideology. Well, I guess like um, it it came a lot from the um, the Satanic Temple observing um, their shenanigans over in the US um, years ago. Um, so they're a they're an organization that um, they're they're ideological. They're not us. Theistic, so that means that they don't actually worship Satan as a deity. It's more like the way that I guess Buddhism doesn't have a deity, so to speak. It's just got um, 
you know, a collection of ideologies and uh, practices. So um, Satanism comes from, in in my mind, it comes from the, the moment where Eve took the apple um, from Satan, and uh, that that to a to a Christian um, uh, mind, I guess, or audience, is that that moment is uh, the downfall of mankind. You know, it's where we um, we went awry, and uh, to uh, it, it within Satanism, I would say that that's the moment where we claimed um, freedom and we we uh, took agency for our own um, lives and and existences and decided to take knowledge and power for ourselves rather than being willing to live in ignorant bliss. And, uh, yeah, so, so the, the ideology of the band kind of like revolves around that, that moment, I guess, uh, as, as Satanism does. And, um, you know, uh, in, in every way possible, kind of trying to claim knowledge and freedom and power for ourselves rather than being willing to obey the status quo, uh, which in a lot of ways is, is very conservative, is influenced by really conservative religious laws from many thousands of years ago that, you know, don't really benefit us or apply to us anymore. And um, the world has changed so much since then it doesn't make sense to be following these laws and, you know, just... Uh, it just makes more sense for us to be, um, you know, claiming our own freedom, doing what we want to do rather than what we're told we should do, or uh, giving into the pressure of society telling us to live a certain way, you know. You must really feel like the times suit the band. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's, especially in the last even year, there's just been crazy things happening in the U.S., and that always trickles down to Australia, I find. And um, it's just, I mean, it's, it's been like this for a while, but I think it's, it's the, um, the, the dying embers of, of religion that become so much more, you know, as, as, it, as it becomes, it starts to slide into basically what it is sliding into as a minority population in the world. And... Um, getting further and further towards that place. And and I think that that makes it um, more uh, violent or, well, definitely violent in certain situations, but definitely, like, very um, uh, fierce in in weakness, I think. And so there's these turning tides of, of um, you know, public opinion and public interest in, in certain laws and certain um, practices changing. Uh, so for the abortion laws, for example, uh, uh, anti-abortion laws are massively unpopular. But there's just this very tiny population of very furious um, and uh, weakened religious uh, organizations and groups and, and lobbyists that are very loud and uh, uh, seem capable of making real political change against the will of the majority of the people. And... Um, Hopefully that's not going to happen in Australia. It, it doesn't seem to be happening in the same way that it's happening in, in America, but it's, it's terrifying.
Absolutely. And they've really gerrymandered, you know, state legislatures in the US, like over in Ohio, for example. But you're right, we did see that public backlash with that um, that constitutional amendment they tried to get up where, you know, 60% of people would have to vote for a change uh, to the constitution of the state. And it was unsuccessful. And it was all about abortion, wasn't it? It was all about putting the 60% threshold in so that abortion wouldn't be enshrined in the state's constitution later this year when there's a vote. Yeah, it's just crazy. It's it's horrific. I just um, it, 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 the the democratic process has been hijacked by a bunch of psychos, basically. And yeah, and it's why it's so important to to fight against these things with art. You know, like I I don't know I don't understand politics well enough to wade into that uh, swamp, but I can um, stand on a stage and scream about it <laughs> and hopefully that'll make a difference and that must feel great and i mean just that energy in your live shows where it just builds and builds and builds and there's that showmanship that you put on as well like um it must be an incredible feeling when you're on stage oh it's amazing yeah i i love it i feel like it's just absolute freedom i feel like i used to get um anxious before i go on stage and uh I don't know, feel feel worried about what I was going to say and, um, you know, just how the show was going to go. And every every time we play at, a, at another venue that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm worried about the show happening or what, how it will go or what I'm going to say and then it all just kind of pours out um, really naturally and, and it's just the best fun. I'm just, I'm just having the time of my life up there. Do you find that this switch just goes on and this part of you comes out that's not part of your everyday kind of persona, but it just kind of emerges? Do you feel yourself kind of going through this physiological change on stage? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not roaming around the streets ranting <laughs> at people like I do on stage. That would be that would be horrible. Um, <laughs> so it's definitely like a kind of character. I mean, it is, it is, it is me to a certain extent, but I kind of... Um, yeah, something switches on in me and I and I become this other being and step into this like wild, uh, insane priest and um yeah, just like let that loose on the audience. And it's almost like I'm watching it, you know, from from away from myself and um seeing this seeing this character just set set loose. Wow, so you feel like you almost have this out of body experience watching yourself become a snake oil preacher. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hey, look, I've got to ask you something. Were you really once a lighthouse keeper? <laughs> no. no, I think that that was that came from a friend. A friend of mine worked on a. This was years ago. Uh, worked on a, 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 a street press, and uh, and and just told that story, made it up. <laughs> <laughs> Wrote an article about me, yeah. Which kind of fits with the snake oil preacher kind of, you know, storyline, doesn't it? And the, the Donald Trump parallels as well. <laughs> yeah, totally. Hey, look, you in America before. Um, have you ever thought about touring over there? I mean, I think that would be a real show. And when we first spoke, you said, look, you know, we've never had protests at any of our gigs, but you said you'd kind of like that to happen. Well, maybe if you went to the States, it would. Yeah, well, I would love to go to the States, to do a Bible Belt tour, really get people angry. That would be amazing. Because also there's the thing about the States is because there's so much, um, you know, fervent religiosity there. And, you know, um, 
there's there's violent conservatism and 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 the church and state really being um, mixed together. But there's also the, the other side of that, the, the really radically um, anti all of those things. The um, Satanic Temple that I was talking about before, they they have big numbers in the states and have big uh, chapters in in different states all around America, around the United States. And um, yeah, I would love to like hook up with them and see how we can get involved with um, uh, join forces, do some black masses together, and uh, they're just they're. The stuff that I've seen of theirs uh, online is, is um, these these great like political um, stunts that they pull, and um, I've just had so much admiration for that organisation. I'd love to um, hook up with them over there and um, do some shows together or something. And yeah, and just and just journey through the states and see uh, seeing <laughs> seeing how how they would react to us. And I, I feel like we could get some protests. I feel like we could maybe get shot at too. You know, it's like it's a bit scary, but it would be it would be quite an adventure. I really want to try and do it. We've 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 been slowly kind of just just edging into the the, the planning stages of trying to get a US tour together. So um, hopefully. Maybe next year, maybe the year after. Wow! So it's really, it's really something that's bubbling along. It's really probably going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think so. It's it's like everything that we've we've done so far in the uh, getting further in the music industry. It's just like, uh, will this work? Will we get into this festival? I guess we just apply and then see if it works. And I guess we just you know uh, book this massive venue and see if we can fill it. Um, and it's just been kind of going really well, and surprisingly, I don't, I don't know. Like uh, I was, I was doing this for years, and um, just getting thirty of our friends in a room, and you know, getting maybe a couple of hundred bucks for it, and, and now it's just, it's really taken off, and it's, and we're filling rooms, and it's, it's just really exciting and su- surprising to me. Dane Blacklock there from Dane Blacklock and the Preacher's Daughter. Well, in June, I spoke with iconic entertainer Dolly Diamond. Well, lovely to be with you. Your career is extraordinary. It has been a tough few months for the community with attacks from the far right and turfs. Uh, Even longer, really. Um, It's just bubbled up a lot more in the last, as you mentioned, few months. Um, But it's been going on a while now. And your performances have been targeted. I know you went interstate. Yes. And uh, it was dreadful. Yes. And, um, you know, there's no real end to it. Well, the end at the moment is no offence. You know, it's easier for those organising them not to organise them. And that's wrong in in every sense, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, I've been delighted, though, by the emergence of the Rainbow Community Angels. What a godsend. Yeah, they are amazing. And, you know, um, obviously I'm not alone. Uh, Acts like Frock Hudson and, uh, you know, many, many others all interstate and around Australia, in America, in Britain, all over. 
And um, yes, there's no end to it. I have no idea what the solution is, um, but it's getting on my nerves. And that's putting it mildly. You mentioned the UK a few years ago. Uh, Dolly started performing over there. And I've got to say, it's been happening, you know, ongoing every every northern summer. And it's exceeded everyone's expectations, including yours. You're a huge hit over there. Well, I'm, I'm English originally. And uh, that's where I began, you know, doing all of this. Um, nonsense and yeah no I love going back to visit and work I mean I'm really lucky that I'm able to work over there and in Australia really. What's happening over there in terms of uh, performers being targeted is it the same as here? Yes it is. Yes it is and um, you know it's it's a radical mob an angry mob you know, with the mantra of, won't somebody please think of the children? You know, we are. And, uh, you know, uh, the answer to it all is, don't bring your children to these events if you don't want them there. You know, the ones that are there want to be there because a parent or a guardian has brought them along to watch somebody read them a story. You know, this is not difficult. You've done story time quite a bit. Uh, tell us what the experience is like for you. Well, I mean, I love it. You know, I've always loved children and, you know, I think it's really, I mean, you know, if also if I'm brutally honest, it's a business. It's another area where I'm able to work. And that's what this is. This is my business. And uh, if I'm able to do that and look out at these, you know, darling children that are loving all the colour, all the movement, all the flamboyance, then why wouldn't I love that? I do this uh, because I, well, I mean, I, you know, I, I, li- I like the, uh, I like people laughing. I like people clapping. I, li- I want to be adored. What is wrong with that? Tell us a little bit about the Dolly story. Like, how did Dolly become a performer? I mean, I've been working all my life. And, um, you know, I think uh, what made um, things for me is I was working in London in the in the 90s. And it was, you know, you, you really work your ass off over there in that, you know, you're on at 11 or midnight and you burst out um, with your moving on up or ooh, ah, just a little bit. And um, whether the audience listen or not is up to, you know, depending on whether they like you, whether you're commanding, whether they're drunk um, and all of the above. And so when I moved or worked in Melbourne to begin with, I um, loved that I was doing venues where they bought a ticket. You know, it's this is obviously very easy, isn't it? That generally if you buy a ticket, you want to watch. You are willing to listen. And that for me was the making of what I was doing, you know. Were you surprised how much the media, the mainstream media, kind of, you know, embraced Dolly? No, I mean, I'm. I think. I think I'm. I'm sort of safe in a way, you know. And uh, I mean, I've I, a lot of what I um, was doing over the years. I would look up to artists like 
Tame Edna. This is when, um, you know, many moons ago when Tame Edna was, you know, less divisive. Obviously, I don't believe in any of the, you know, a lot of the last comments that were made in in late years. Um, But, you know, I, I love to mess with an audience. I love to entertain in an audience and um, I think I, I like that I was embraced um, mainly by ABC you know um, in that, that they were very welcoming back when it was Virginia Trioli and Michael Rowland on News Breakfast you know that was um, wonderful to be asked you know to be a regular on that there must be a lot of pressure being Dolly Diamond in the community, but also just to keep up appearances. No, I don't. I don't, I don't feel that. I love what I do. I think on the, you know, days or weeks or months in your life where you think, "Oh my lord, I've had enough." Um, I, t- you know, I rest. Um, but generally, I love work, and um, I think if you're willing to accept this work and you want to do it um, then no winching, you know, booked and blessed. So what makes you feel sometimes like you have had enough? I think just, you know, um, I mean obviously with all the furor of the negative, you know, story time, that was enough you know, I'm at my limit on that. Um, But generally I'm alright. I mean when you walk out and you make people laugh and at the end of what you're doing, they applaud you, that's a pretty good job, isn't it? And um, in the, uh, up till a year ago, I used to drink while I worked. And that was all right. I mean, I was not operating any, you know, really heavy machinery. or um, But now I don't drink. But uh, then I was enjoying, you know, a bottle of wine and singing and laughing. I mean, you know, there's not a lot to, to complain about. I'm not working down, down the mine, am I? That's interesting that you stopped drinking. Like, what brought that on? I would look in my wardrobe and I would look, oh, I, I might wear that. No. Oh, I might wear that. No. And I was just, um, I was bursting too many sips. And it was annoying me. And I knew, um, I think we all know, if we shut our mouths and put a little less in, not in every department, but mainly, you'll lose weight. And I wanted to lose weight um, in my mid-50s, we'll say, that'll do. And uh, it's made all the difference. And I like mornings now. Yeah, right. Uh, so you're on your bike. Yes. Fantastic. You know, uh, yes. I mean, and, you know, it's not practical when I'm wearing shoes, you know, heels or whatever. Um, but other than that, I um, I like being a little fitter and less fatter. You have a fabulous performance coming up real soon yes. at the Pride Centre. It's called Dolly Diamond's Rather Large Variety Night. Tell us all about it. Well, I wanted to, um, you know, I'm always doing gigs and I always love it when you come watch a night where there's lots of other acts, you know, on. I mean, I love emceeing events and I like the fact that you get a little bit of everything in the one night. 
and uh, I'm taking this show over to London in July and then the Edinburgh Fringe in August. And I thought, well, I'm not missing out on doing this in Melbourne before I leave. Lots of great cabaret. Tell us about some of the numbers you'll be doing. Well, I've all new, which is exciting. New. I know. It's a, it's a miracle in June. And um, I, uh, well, there's one, there is an Oliver number. I've got to open with an Oliver number. It's a little bit of camp, everybody. And um, then there is a Lyser number. And then there is, um, what else? There is a number from Taboo, the musical. You must have been so busy. I mean, the rehearsing must be quite intense. I, I mean, I'm not really a big fan of that either, if I'm honest. Really? No. I like live and I like on. Um, but I'm not on my own. So, you know, you've got to so that every other, you know, everyone in the room knows what's going on. It's all right if I think, well, we'll make it, you know, we're going to make it all up. Um, but then not everybody knows what the bloody hell you're doing, you know. And, um, but yes, we are. We have, we've been um, you know, getting together a lot on this. You must have a great grounding. I know you have a great grounding in performance. I mean, you were a child performer. Yes. Does that kind of basis mean that you've got the, the prowess and the confidence to be able to do it live with minimal rehearsals? Yes. I mean, for me, yes. But everybody's different, you know. Um, a lot of other artists love that process of, you know, getting in a room and workshopping everything, whereas I'm more improvised and live. Um, but there are benefits, obviously, of knowing, you know, a little bit about what you're doing if everybody else needs to be with you, you know. But it must make every show different. It must yes. make them all kind of, you know, very spontaneous but different. Uh, well, that's why I love that more than a musical. You know, you're not allowed to vary a musical, whereas what I do can be different every night. And people want to come back repeatedly to see your shows. Is that the secret of your success? That spontaneity, every Dolly show is slightly different. So well, people I, want more yes, and more. Yes, I believe that would be it because, you know, I mean, a lot of these gigs I've been doing um, Love is in the Air almost as long as John Paul Young. And um, but you've got to, when you're out on that stage, you've got to make it look like you've never done it before, you know. And I know I'm able to do that. I mean, I when you love what you do, I mean, I'm not ridiculous. I don't love it every minute of my life, um, but I generally love what I do and I burst out and I'm ready to knock it out. The legendary Dolly Diamond there. Three C well, earlier this year, the Trans Justice Project and the Victorian Pride Lobby released the Fueling Hate Report, and I spoke with Austin Fabry Jenkins from the Victorian Pride Lobby. Austin, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, James. It's good to be here. It's great to have you back on board. Uh, the Fueling Hate Report is pretty landmark. What were the findings? Yeah, so uh, we've been conducting research for this report. Uh, for a couple of months over April and May. Uh, we had over 3,000 community members respond and over 1,300 of those community members identified as trans and gender diverse. 
But it's important to remember that the findings from this report also include the views of cisgender allies and what they were witnessing. Um, now, it's a lot of things that transgender people would already know are included in the findings, and that's that anti-trans hatred is unfortunately still rife in Australia. So we had 47% of the trans and gender diverse participants had experienced in-person anti-trans abuse, harassment, vilification or violence in the last 12 months. And 15% of transgender participants had experienced anti-trans violence in the last 12 months, which likely recommends many, many unrecorded hate crimes, unfortunately, in this country. But what's more important about this report is, and what we were really looking for, is that it found that this anti-trans hatred is actually on the rise. So 83% of all the participants, including the cisgender ones, said that they saw significantly more online anti-trans hatred compared to 2020. And 23% of the trans participants experienced more or significantly more in-person anti-trans abuse in the previous two months. And 68% of the participants saw more online anti-trans hatred in the two months prior to the survey. And it's that two-month timeline that's really, really important to us because it coincides with Posey Parker's anti-trans speaking tour. Um, and so we as advocates obviously had a pretty strong hypothesis that that speaking tour was really going to fuel anti-trans hatred. And what this report shows is that the evidence backs that up and that's what the community was feeling too. And so vital to have this information because we need government leadership, but also leadership in the media to counteract uh, this hatred. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think it's it's interesting to see a report and it, it is a very dark report and it's a kind of horrific thing to have to read and publish. But in some ways, as a trans person myself, I find it oddly empowering because I think one of the things that decision makers will say or the media will say or the people who are against us say is that, you know, the experiences that we have of anti-trans hatred and abuse and how those coincide with the rhetoric in the media and the rhetoric in our political sphere, people will tell us that it's not really happening. And so to be able to kind of collectively come together and provide that data and then have it in a concrete, citable format of, you know, we've done the research, this is a real thing, our experiences are very real and we're all experiencing them. It's quite an empowering thing to have that as a tool in our toolkit for advocacy. It's unbelievable that people are saying to the trans and gender diverse community that it doesn't exist. What gaslighting? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it is just gaslighting and that that is uh, something that you will see, uh, particularly in the space of, you know, conservatives who are anti-trans who are cosplaying as feminists at the moment will often say that the abuse we experience isn't real. Recommendations in fueling hate. Uh, what, what What's there? Yeah, so... Uh, main recommendation for the headline is that we really need state and federal governments to deliver anti-vilification protections for the whole LGBTIQA plus community. Um, and those vilification protections don't actually exist in every legislature. So we certainly do not have them in Victoria currently. Um, in Victoria currently, we have an act called the Racial and Religious Tolerance Act, which protects people from vilification and hate speech on the basis of their race and religion. Now, that is incredibly important. People need those protections for those attributes, but it doesn't make any sense to me that only two of our protected attributes would be covered under that act. So that is kind of a headline for us as the Pride Lobby is that we're really trying to push the state government to deliver on those reforms sooner rather than later to protect us from hate speech. 
Uh, some other recommendations from in there were basically to investigate media and social media regulations that can prevent the spread of anti-trans disinforma disinformation and tackle online anti-trans abuse, and also funding into research for grassroots interve interventions that combat extremism. And I don't think any of these recommendations are new. Most of these recommendations are also touched upon in the 2021 Legislative Assembly inquiry into vilification as well. The Victorian government has made that commitment to act on, on vilification. Where are they at? At the moment, we, we seem to be getting a rolling 18-month uh, timeline from the government, uh, which is kind of why LGBTIQA plus organisations are being so strong on this and so consistent in why it's a need. Uh, I really feel, you know, this inquiry happened in 2021. It was then included in the state government's own roadmap for LGBTIQA plus equality, but they really dragged their feet on it. And we at, at the Pride Lobby have been advocating for it for almost nine months now as a top priority for the community this year. So what we're really trying to do is stay vigilant and make sure that that 18-month timeline is at least set in stone and that we're able to get these reforms as soon as we possibly can. Because honestly, with what we've seen this year with the abuse that local councils and local libraries have faced running LGBTIQA plus youth events, we needed these reforms yesterday. So we're trying to remain vigilant and make sure that we actually get them. Yeah, I mean, you know, say 12 months ago, that 18 months might have seemed reasonable, but now with this escalating situation, uh, which is rolling pretty quickly, uh, you're right, we need action now. Yeah, exactly. And the, the state government is able to deliver on these things fairly quickly uh, when they see it as a priority. You know, for example, we've recently seen the ban on uh, the Nazi salute that's heading into the parliament uh, pretty much this week. So when they feel the need to move quickly, they can move really quickly. And that ban on the Nazi salute I support because I take my lead from, you know, the Jewish community on this, and I think we should get it done. But it, it seems odd that that can move so quickly, but our own vilification reforms that keep getting pushed back. You mentioned uh, regulation online. Um, how realistic is that, considering you've got people like Elon Musk uh, controlling X? Yes, uh, very, very difficult. Um, but this is something that was actually covered uh, in Fiona Patton's original bill in 2019, which then led to the vilification inquiry. Um, the main point of Fiona Patton's original bill wasn't actually to extend protections to the LGBTIQA plus community, although we did end up getting included in that bill. It was actually about uh, being able to find out the identities of people who were engaging in some pretty horrendous abuse and targeted harassment of women MPs at the time. Um, and that's something that we still need in this state. We still need the ability for uh, someone to be able to find out from a social media company or at least request the information if they're experiencing ongoing abuse and harassment, which is having a real impact in their real lives. And often it does. We see a lot of doxing happening at the moment to particularly the trans community, then they should be able to get that information. And I think social media companies also have a responsibility to prevent violent crimes from happening on their platforms. You mentioned federal anti-vilification law before. Um, where's the Albanese government on that? Uh, that is a difficult question. So you you might have seen recently it was in the Labor Party's platform to extend vilification protections uh, to a broader subject, subsection of the community. 
Um, that was attempted to be bought out of the national platform a few months ago, but due to a backlash from grassroots Labor Party members who moved a lot of motions in their branches, um, that was then put back into the National Party platform. So we did get a small win there and that we were able to keep it in, but the fact that someone tried to take it out in the first place suggests that we've got a lot of work to do in the federal space to try to get the Albanese government on board with the reforms that the LGBTIQA plus community needs. Because, I mean, if Victoria's lagging behind, imagine some of the other states like Western Australia and Queensland, that federal protection is very needed for those folks over there. Yeah, I believe we do actually have some vilification protections in some other states that are usually more conservative than Victoria. For example, I believe we have them in New South Wales, but uh, I'm not an expert on all of the other jurisdictions. Um It's certainly... The thing with the vilification reforms that we're fighting for in Victoria and what makes it so interesting in a way is they're not... We're not going for brand-new legislation. This isn't like the conversion practices law and it's not like birth certificate reform where we're trying to lead the country. There's examples of this legislation existing in other state governments already. We just need to kind of get a wriggle on and actually get them in place for ourselves. You've been in the role as the co-convener of the Victorian Pride Lobby since just before the state election last year. What's the experience been like for you? Oh, hectic. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I mean, I love it. It is a privilege to be able to be in a position uh, to advocate for the community. And I, you know, I have a deep love for the community and that's the only thing that I think keeps driving me every day is, you know, I think that we deserve to be treated with respect and I think that we deserve to be organised and and treated as the experts in our own lives and that's kind of what drives me every day. But I have to say, when I took over the role, I was expecting us to be doing more kind of proactive campaigning in the federal space for transgender rights. I didn't expect that we would be, you know, on the coalface of fighting (laughs) rising extremism and fascism in Australia, but that's kind of where we've landed and, you know, as hard as it is, I'm, I'm very glad to be here and I'm very glad to kind of be standing side by side with the whole community in this fight. You were the driving force behind the Pride Lobby's rally for Trans Day of Visibility and I've got to say it was wildly successful and I think I can't remember the last time the lobby organised a rally. I, yeah, I'm not sure if we ever had. Um, yeah, I, I just felt like that was what the community needed at that point. Um, and, you know, there wasn't, uh, there was a lot of fear in the community when I raised it as an idea, but it really just kind of hit me that I feel often when something really bad happens to the trans community, there is a tendency for people to feel like we need to be wrapped up in cotton wool. And while there are plenty of very, very vulnerable trans people in our community that we do need to protect and that we, you know, particularly myself as an older, more privileged trans person, you know, I need to wrap them up and protect them from the violence and the hatred that's occurring at the moment. But there's a whole bunch of others of us that just get very, very angry and just want to do something to kind of, you know, go get out there and show that the community doesn't have to be afraid and that we're stronger and we have the critical mass. And that's really why I wanted to do it. And, yeah, I don't think the Pride Lobby has ever organised a rally before, but... If you want something to happen, you just kind of got to do it yourself without worrying about the consequences sometimes. So you're saying there was resistance within the community about the lobby 
are organising that rally for Trans Day of Visibility because of concerns, fears of backlash? Like, what was that about? Yeah, I think people, certain people I spoke to, so I had uh, quite a few trans friends and comrades that I spoke to before and said, what would you think about this idea? And quite a few of them said, I think that's amazing. Um, and, you know, it was modelled off the... It's modelled off the Reclaim the Night style rallies that um, the women's movement used to organise when there would be a murder of a woman, they would organise these to say they weren't afraid and they were going to reclaim the night. So it was modelled off that, and I think a lot of trans folks got that and went, that feels kind of exactly what I need. Um, but there were certainly other, you know, trans friends that I had who I spoke to who were really afraid about the prospect of, of doing that and going, you know... What if it's really, really small? What if neo-Nazis turn up? What if we can't manage the risks of actual fascists? But, and all of those were concerns of mine too, but I just kind of looked at the energy of the community and where we were at and went, you know what, I just back myself here. I think we're going to get at least 1,000 people, and I don't think the neo-Nazis can turn out more than 30, and I think that we can, we can handle that. And as it turned out, you know, if it hadn't have rained, we would have probably got 10,000 people and the 5,000 who did turn up was just incredible and no fascist was ever going to be able to disrupt it. Well, I think it made the right call. It was a fantastic event, great turnout, and I've got to say brilliant, very heartfelt, passionate speeches. Yeah, I was very happy with the speakers we got. We were, I, I had a little collective of activists working on that and, you know, we had a few parameters about we had to make sure that yeah, there were plenty of people of colour represented and that we had Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander trans folks speaking. And I think that having those rules and parameters for ourselves with who we reached out to really made it quite a beautiful event. Can we expect more rallies? Oh, it was quite hard. <laughs> um, but I think if something if something happens again that piques my interest where I feel like we need a rally, then, you know, I'm not going to rule it out. Uh, it, was, it was a pretty amazing day. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.